Welcome to all of our new and existing relatives and listeners. This is the Healing Dojo podcast series brought to you by the Her Wellness Institute in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us as we engage in meaningful conversation around the complexities of our collective and individual healing. Listen along with us as we free think and practice CAM, Community Activated Medicine, where the people are the medicine. Come as you are and let's begin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Healing Dojo podcast. My name is Eva Bloom. Um, I am a social work intern here at Her Wellness through University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So I am one of our hosts for today's podcast, and I am joined by my co-host, the wonderful Fonde Bridges. So excited to, to talk to Matt and, yeah. um, and really to spark this new season of conversation. A little bit excited. I'm so excited to just taste the perspective that he has about the patriarch and how that influences us. So I know you've got a lot of questions. I'm going to just be a little patient and let you chime on in and introduce Matt Anderson so we can all get a, a taste of who he is and, and discover what his practice is and how it benefits everyone, how his work is the medicine. No, of course. Thank you so much, Fonde. I am so excited too. So I'm sure we're going to have those times where we all want to jump in. I'm so excited to ask these questions. Um, so yeah, today we have the pleasure of being with Matt Anderson, one of our CEO and founder, Leah Denny's friends here at Her Wellness. Um, she has created this podcast to allow us to kind of open up some conversations just as a learning institute and just talk mm -hmm. about things that maybe we don't always think about. I'm so excited. Um, Fonde and I are really excited to meet Matt. I'll just give him a little bit of an introduction today um, for today's podcast, and then we will meet him ourselves. So perfect, perfect. I am incredibly excited to announce that I have the pleasure of interviewing Matt Anderson today, and we are going to be addressing our theme of boys to men and healing the patriarchy within, as I said. So Matt earned his master's in social work at the University of Montana and has used his degree to build a career in youth engagement, child welfare practice, organizational leadership, public policy, and media to address the need for change in our family systems. Wow. Matt helped found the Institute for Family, an agency that works to provide families with the care to prevent neglect and maltreatment towards children and families. Our guest also serves as the Vice President of Programs and Business Development for Children's Home Society of North Carolina. Matt is actually also the host of his own podcast, Seen Out Loud, which works to pursue family well-being by having conversations with people who have experienced the foster care and child welfare system. And you know, I could keep talking about his accomplishments all day, but let's let Matt speak for himself. With that being said, I am happy to introduce Matt Anderson. How are you today, Matt? I, I'm doing great today. So um, just happy to be here with, with you all. And thanks for the opportunity to, to have the conversation. So I'm excited to see where, where we go. Of course, we are so excited. I know Fonde is excited as well. Um, and we're just so happy to have you here. So thank you so much. Hey, Matt, I just got to say right away, I, I thought she wasn't going to stop. I thought it was just going to, I thought just introducing the magnificent things, I was just listening and I was so overjoyed. I was like, all right, this is going to be great. This man, I know. This the crazy thing is that's just a little bit of it. There's so yeah, much. Yeah, right. You're like, oh, this man is the medicine on the planet. So this right. is great. I love it. I love it. Let's let's go ahead, Eva. I know you got questions. I'll 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 be patient. 
No, it really is an honor, Matt. And before we get into kind of the the theme of our day, I just kind of wanted to ask if you would mind sharing with us a little bit about what brought you to pursue a career in social work, um, especially mm. like emphasizing the importance of family because not mm. everyone takes that path. Yeah, it's um, it's a good question. And I, <laughs> so let me start by saying this, because this is, I've always found this interesting about myself. Um, when I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, decided that I wanted to be not in a city kind of environment. I wanted to be in the mountains. And so I moved to Missoula, Montana to go to the University of Montana, where my first uh, declared major was forestry, just about as far as away as you can get from child welfare and social work and working with kids and families and communities. And I, I realized pretty quickly that the science of forestry was not interesting to me. And it was really the intersection of our environment and our society and people, mm. people and nature, where that comes together was what was really more interesting to me. Um, but then I, you know, as I kind of went, went on in school and um, coming out of college, I started working in a community-based organization that was working with teenagers, primarily kids that were being um, ticketed for drinking underage, essentially. And uh, our job was to provide some basic education, early intervention kind of programming. Um, and I found that I really liked it. I really liked working with, with kids. I really liked working with families. And I got really kind of into, okay, so if we're here to solve a problem of underage drinking, presumably that's what we were there to do. Okay, so what do, what do teenagers have to teach us about how to solve that problem? And so that um, really kind of piqued my interest. And then um, one of our board members was on faculty at the School of Social Work at the University of Montana. And I'd never honestly heard of, so like, I didn't really know anything about social work or I didn't think about a master's of social work. I was actually thinking psychology and uh -huh. thinking therapist. Um, and I'm so glad I went the social work route because I have worked as a therapist, but I've also worked as a film producer. I've worked as a lobbyist. I've, I've done so many different things that a social work degree kind of sets you up for. And um, I think I've just found purpose, my passion um, in life is, you know, to, to try to, to make an impact that benefits um, kids and families and communities. And I'm just constantly looking for ways to do that. And a social work career and background has helped me do that. In a lot of ways, it keeps it really interesting. Was there, a, you mentioned it kind of vaguely, but was there an incident or a moment or a circumstance with a child that activated that reality for you? Because you mentioned a lot of things you could do as a social worker, but really to move from loving trees to like, I love humanity, which I get it, we're, we get oxygen, it's a, it's a love thing. Hey, I, was yeah. I, I was just curious, was there a, a, a moment, an incident that activated that for you? In terms of making the transition from like forestry to working with families, I don't know if there's a moment per se, but to be quite honest, my own childhood and family experiences have, I think, shaped a lot of where my interest and passion for our work comes from. And I think that that just started to, to come into some clarity when I was, you know, in college and, and after college. And so it just made a whole lot of sense for me. I will say though that there was a there were there were two moments and and I'll I'll touch on them and you all tell me if we want to go further but one moment and it was just a moment of clarity in my first job out of college where we can provide great programs around underage drinking and how to educate kids 
but the next cake party is happening next weekend. <laughs> okay. And, right. And like more kids are going to come, more kids are going to come, more kids are going to come. So what are we doing to get at, at a root cause? Right. Mm, and then yeah. that was a moment of clarity. And then um, working with kids aging out of foster care, that was my first child welfare job as a social yeah. worker, that population. And one of those uh, kids that I was working with at the time, you know, asked me if I knew his story. Okay. And I told him I didn't know. And he said, well, you need to know my story. And he spent about an hour and a half telling me his, his life story. Wow. Um, and at the end of his story, he said, my life matters. Mm. And people need to know what happened to me. Okay. And that moment changed my life. That was 2007. And okay. so my, my life has been forever changed from that one moment when he said, do you know my story? Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, that's so insightful. I feel like we can kind of hear how that impacted you just through the way you were explaining. You have a lot of experience working in um, the child welfare system and kind of creating this change. Can you describe your role specifically through the Institute for Family and through the Seen Out Loud podcast? I know um, you're kind of bringing in a lot of voices that aren't necessarily often heard, um, which I love. So if you could kind of touch on that, that would be amazing. Why do the work of the Institute, but why do it from a point of view of storytelling? Yeah, um, there's, there's kind of background to that. But, you know, in the intro, you mentioned that I'm vice president of programs for Children's Home Society of North Carolina. So I've been in that role for a number of years now, um, leading our, our foster care and adoption services. We do some really, really great work with kids and families who are in the child welfare system. And we have for decades. I think what has become clear to me, and, and I think us as an organization, that there's just far more opportunity for us to do work that is much further upstream from the front door of the child welfare system. Again, right, what are the sort of, what's underneath the symptoms that we tend to respond to, whether it's underage drinking or any other issue in society, right? What are the root cause issues? And so that's a driving question for us, but really, you know, for us as Children's Home Society, thinking about being a mission-driven problem solver and a problem that we're interested in making our contribution to solving is how do we keep families safely together? Mm -hmm. And if we're successful at doing that, we're going to reduce the number of kids who are coming into foster care, which is, which is a very, very good thing, right? If we need to keep kids safe, we have to have ways to keep kids safe. There's a whole lot that we can do to invest in families and communities that keep kids together with their family at home. And I, I don't think we've done enough yet as a society or as a child welfare system to focus our, our attentions there. So it's, it's that sort of line of questions and concerns and realizations that um, is in part what gave birth to the idea of the Institute for Family. That requires some level of systems change, right? right. And so how do systems change or even do systems change? Can a system change? Mm. Well, I don't know if a system can change. <laughs> what can change is the individuals who work within that system, right? So systems don't change, people change. Yeah. And how do people change? People change um, through learning the experiences of another person, right? Some of the best ways to, to change our own kind of mindset and how we make our decisions is to get connected and, and relate to somebody that's different from you. And when you do that, you know, that kind of proximity and relationship building, then it starts to change how you, how you think about um, the world around you. And so a little bit of why we're leaning so heavily into this idea of storytelling and lifting up the stories that often aren't told, because we think that's a strategy for changing 
the system at the individual level kind of in working your way up. Can, can I ask just a, a small um, connect, a connecting point? So when people apply or volunteer with your organization, do you all, is, is, is the narrative and the storytelling, is that a significant requirement for them to be able to find that initial common ground? Like, is that part of your strategy with everyone that um, is introduced into your organization so they have that empathy, they have that compassion? The Institute for Family is a, is a part of Children's Home Society of North Carolina. And there's a very small team that just works for the Institute. Okay. So we've been kind of slowly building that team. It's, you know, really five, five people right now okay. um, that work hundred percent for the Institute. And, you know, I think that, that we have um, had a lot of conversation early on about what are the, what are the values that we want everybody to bring to this work? And, you know, above all else, there's this, this value of the belief in the power of family. Um, there's a value in, you know, uh, listening to people's experiences, to their stories, to learning from their expertise, mm-hmm. finding ways to take action together with people, not for people, you know, a level of sort of authenticity in the work. Um, so there's, there, yeah, there's a set of, of core values that, that are really important to us, but certainly empathy is at the center of that, right? I think that's, that's really, really critical. It's, it's, it's the the it's um, the reason storytelling is such a powerful tool is because vehicle to create empathy in the audience, and it's that level of empathy that I've always found that compels people to take action. Yeah. So if you want somebody to do something, you have to get them to feel something first, yeah. right? And so a lot of the times when we're thinking about advocacy or systems change or just sort of advancing an agenda, you know, we often go to sort of data and science and rational arguments and those things certainly have their place but they're not necessarily the things that motivate people exactly Mm -hmm. mentioning kind of keeping the family together i'm wondering if you can elaborate on what that means to you a little more um, from my experience as a social worker and kind of talking to people that have been a part of um the child welfare system, there is somewhat of a distrust. I don't know if you would agree with that, um, especially connecting to even our boys coming into their adulthood, um, being okay with kind of reaching out to social welfare services and wanting to kind of be a part of that. Um, I'm wondering what keeping the family together means to you and how we can use that to kind of create or rebuild trust in our communities. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. I think it's, it's, you're getting at one of the more important conversations that's happening right now in, in our field, meaning the child welfare field. There's, there's this, this move uh, across the country in our field to, you know, people generally refer to it like moving upstream or upstream prevention-based approaches to, to support families, um, which is good, right? That's really important. And that's, we should be having that conversation. But then that, where that goes, is like, well, whose job is that? Like who, who is going to do the work of keeping families together? Is that the child welfare system's job? Is it, is it a different system's job? Are we creating a new system? Is it the church's job? Is it society at large's job? But a lot of the conversation ends up around like, well, what is child welfare as a system? What is its role in prevention of keeping families together? And I think 
I, I think that personally, child welfare has a role to provide child protective services, which then often will include foster care as a service, as a temporary intervention to keep kids safe and then get them back to a permanent family, ideally back to their own biological family. I think the issue is that, that we're probably serving far too many kids in our child welfare system and kids that we don't necessarily need to be serving. Right. So I think that the trust issue, all that being said, the trust issue is a key one of whose job is it to do prevention? I don't think it's the job of the child welfare system to do prevention. I think you know that system has its hands full already. To say now you have to do prevention work, it's too much and okay. it's not gonna work. And, and you know, everybody's gonna suffer if we try to try to go down that road. And then what do families actually need is the is the key question. Like what do families need to stay together? And then where should that support resources, program services, whatever it is, where should that come from? If it's about program services, resources, it should come from places that are in and of the community where those families live. Where when you walk through the door of whatever that organization or whatever that service is, whatever that resource is, it feels like it's in and of your community. When you, when you walk in that door, you feel comfortable. You feel like you can trust. You feel like what you need is gonna be met. And that's incredibly important. Um, and I'm not sure the child welfare system can offer that to families because I think there's too much broken trust um, that so has happened. So Matt, yeah. are you alluding to the fact that what we really need is to have a, a conversation that creates a whole different, I guess, organization, a different um, uh, community-led group that is upstream, like, okay, there's one downstream, but now we need something that actually is upstream, that is consistently, consciously committed to it assisting families and staying together when they go through moments of crisis or trauma and help. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I, I, it is. And I think that, um, you know, I, I can, I can overthink this kind of stuff and make it more complicated maybe than it is. I don't know, but like, <laughs> I think it's that. And I think that, um, you know, because we have a system that's been organized, right? And systems are, are what? They're, 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 they're a set of policies and practices and where we put our resources, particularly our dollars, right. to try to address some collective issue. Yeah. So we've built the child welfare system. And I think that we need process to get at what you're raising, I think, yeah. right? So like, is it a, a new system, a, a set of community-based organizations? Like what, what is it that's going to help families thrive, that's going to keep families together? Well, how we answer those questions, I think it's important to think about the process that we take to get to those questions. So, you know, typically it's, it's people that sit in, in formal positions of power and leadership like me who come together and say, well, this is what this group of people needs. And so let's go provide that service or program or solution to meet their needs. You know, maybe that's the patriarchy that you guys are referencing. I don't know. But like, I do think that that has some real limitations as a process mm, for mm -hmm. addressing issues. So what about a, a community driven process? I see. Right. Where where a local community comes together and says, well, what are the issues that families are dealing with in this community? 
And now how can we co-design solutions to address those issues? And then once we've you know done that in a in a more shared power sort of sense, right? Okay, now what policies, practices, and flow of resources do we need to change or create or take away or add that can address some of the issues? So I don't know if that made sense, but I think it, it, to me it's the process that we take. Yeah, um, it, it makes it made it made sense to me that um, yeah we would as a collective definitely include the people who are. Um, who would like us? One of the things I've always thought about to be a benefit, you actually have to ask people what they need. You can't assume yeah. that 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 you know their needs without actually taking them into consideration. So I it it makes absolute sense what you said. I know Eva. I know you've got a couple more questions, and it seems like Matt can. I know I I see that he has a a, a wonderful uh, grasp on what our needs are. I know you've got a couple other. Uh, questions in there, Eva, as well. Yeah, I mean, I really do appreciate both of you kind of bringing your voices in and discussing just that consistency, as you were saying, Fonde, that um, I feel personally as well is needed and this sense of community. Um, Matt, when you're interviewing um, and kind of discussing with people that have been in the system, um, especially through your podcast, but throughout your work, do you hear calls for community? Do you hear that people are kind of missing the sense of community that we should have as a support system? Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things, I mean, there, there are a couple of things that I hear pretty consistently in conversations that, that I have with folks that have experienced the system in some form or fashion. I think one thing is, and this is organically where our podcast Seen Out Loud found its name and its sort of identity, is that, you know, <laughs> Knowing that we exist and that our lives matter and that we belong somewhere, like that is really important to all of us, right? Right. Yeah. And um, we don't always have that experience of knowing that we exist and that our lives matter. Mm. And when we get caught up in systems, often what happens is we feel like a file, we feel like a number we feel like we don't really exist and that we don't really matter, that we're not seen, mm -hmm. right? We're not seen, we're not heard, we're not valued. And that is uh, a crushing blow on top of all the other circumstances that are going on around your life, right? So if, if right. you're a parent whose child has been placed into foster care, you know, there's any number of circumstances that are going on in your life. And now you've had this um, acute trauma Right. of having lost a child, right? And, and then on top of that, you're now caught up in a system that you don't feel seen, heard, and valued. And just the weight of all of that is, is really, really heavy. And I can't imagine how somebody navigates through that to work a case plan, mm. to do what a social worker asks them to do, right. right? And so that's a starting point of like, is this person being seen for who they truly are? Or another way, and I'll, I'll share this with you all because maybe you want to dig into it. Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles um, is a really amazing organization started by a guy named Greg Boyle. Okay. And he wrote a, a book that just came out um, called The Whole Language. And the whole idea of the, the whole language, he talks about speaking the whole language, which means that we speak of the unshakable goodness of all people. 
no matter what the circumstances, right? We never lose sight of the, the goodness that's within people. And that's what I hear when I have these conversations across the board. The other thing quickly I'll say that I hear is that what we provide as programs and services do not always meet the needs that people actually have. And I think that's, you know, then, okay, where do we go with that? Well, we've got to find out if we don't already know, in many cases we do know, like what are the actual needs that people have? Right. And how do we address those needs as opposed to where our, our, our current set of services take us? I really um, enjoy that you framed it. The experience for people when they're in the system is the kind, what I thought of immediately is being removed from being a person into a product and feeling as if you are being, you know, you got stamped with a number and you're being pushed through to get the day's work done instead of being someone pausing and building an authentic layer of relation where you feel acknowledged, where you are seen. And these stories grant everyone an opportunity for a moment of authentic relation, right? And then what you were saying about the goodness and it's, you know, it's the simple narrative around just the, 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 the cup half empty, half full, but it's about how you relate again. And it's about relationship. So I, I enjoy that notion that um, continuing to find that there is, there is good in everyone universally, and therefore we need to stay in that space and keep that, that, that conversation of relationship um, alive. With that being said, do you find that there is a group of people in your community that want to give resources to support what you all see as a need? Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> the, there's a lot of agreement that, okay, so we need to do some things differently here to keep families together. An, an initiative that we just launched here in North Carolina a couple months ago um, in one community, one county in North Carolina, where we're going to take that process that I described of, well, let's, let's bring the community together to understand what the issues are that are driving, in this case, child welfare entries, and then how do we co-design solutions, right? So that's the process that we're just starting here. And so what we've seen so far is that government leadership has put dollars behind this effort. They have put their, you know, kind of social capital and you know, their organizational leadership and opening up access to data. And so we're seeing coming together around, we are cons concerned about families in our community and we do want to try to do something to help. And so, so far we're seeing, seeing interest and, and resources being directed towards this, which is, which is great. Now, you know, as we think about like designing new solutions and wanting to test and, and, and evaluate those solutions, those will potentially cost dollars that, <laughs> you know, we're hopeful that, you know, the, the support is going to follow what's already started. I wanted to touch on kind of the theme I'm getting from this whole movement towards, you know, keeping the family together and kind of how this impacts um, individuals throughout their lives. is just kind of a sense of humanity. Um, here at Her Wellness, we kind of talk about the power of community and just the humanity that that gives someone to know that they don't have to be told how to feel good and kind of um, move through life, um, I think is so important. So 
I love that you're touching on that. And I'm wondering, this is kind of a big question for you. So if you don't have a set answer, it's all good. But um, so I know that our child welfare system has a lot of components um, that affects the individual. And we're talking about a sense of humanity. Do you think that just the small act of bringing um, communities together and putting this level of humanity into an individual's life and reminding them their worth can kind of impact how boys grow to men um, throughout. Like what impact do you think that will have on them? Like at the more personal individual level, you mean? Personal, but then, yeah, also as it grows into kind of spreading throughout the community, I'm wondering if that impact on an individual can spread as they're being exposed to this new community of thinking. Yeah. Um... This is a big question. I, I do think that, I think one, I think one thing, when I, when I think about this question of the humanity <laughs> within all of us, you know, especially when, when, when we're young, mm-hmm. how we're seen by the world around us and how the world around us, the people around us value us. I've seen that translate to how then people value themselves and how they then value the world around them. Mm. And I've seen that be a beautiful thing and I've seen that be a tragic thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's incredibly important that all of us are very intentional about how we enter into relationship with people, how we interact with people, how we treat people. I mean, it may seem kind of basic, but it's really, really important. How we treat each other creates the reality of our, of our lives. And so I think at that individual level, it's, it's, it's incredibly important I, I think when I've seen the biggest sort of community-wide systemic organizational changes happen, I think you can often point back to moments in time where individuals were had the opportunity to be connected to, to be proximate to, to be in relationship to people that are different from them or having different experiences from, from them and teach them something about what they can do in their sphere of influence to create some positive change. For example, what do I, what do I mean by all that, right? Cody tells me his story and then says, my life matters, right? And then immediately following that, he, sh- he says, we should make a movie about my life. Okay, awesome. I love it. Let's do it. We, so we did, right? So we made a feature documentary about oh, wow. America's foster care system. And in that first conversation, I, I said, Cody, what do you want your movie to be about? He said, I just want to go back to all my 17 different foster care placements and talk about what it was like to have to move from one to the next. And now my fear of aging out at 18 and what that's gonna be like, right? Like that's the movie that he wanted to make. Incredible, like we could call that from place to place and we'll tell your story of growing up, moving from place to place in foster care. Mm-hmm. And so we produced a feature documentary about America's foster care system called From Place to Place. The whole question of the, one of the key questions of the film was how do we prevent kids from aging out of foster care? they were aging out of my program and I was watching them age out into homelessness, incarceration, like, you know, the statistics, like these kids were walking into a statistic and it was heartbreaking. So the film then, I I come to North Carolina, I'm working as a a policy person doing lobby work. And I gave that film, a copy of that film to a legislator who watched it. I came back a week later and she said, I made the mistake of watching your film. (laughs) <laughs> I first thought I was like, oh man, I'm about to get fired. Like, what I've been like a year and a half into this job. I'm, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, 
And then she's like, you didn't warn me that I needed a box of Kleenex to watch this. All right. Funds work that prevents kids from aging out of foster care by making sure they're in a family before they turn 18 and age out. Right. And we're now serving seven, 800 kids a year in that program and 200 or so kids a year are prevented from aging out of foster care. So that's sort of like a whole story, I suppose, of like when you listen to Cody saying my life matters, when you take the time to invest in telling his story, and when another person connects to his humanity. One of my quick questions, and this may also be a little challenging one, is, you know, when we think about um, that journey that these young people are going, because you kind of mentioned that they, they, uh, they graduate out or they age out. And then they end up in, the, they were ending up in these um, negative outcomes almost instantaneously. Yeah. When they, and it kind of got me thinking back to this notion of like, how do some of these young men or boys who are becoming men, like, what do they think a man is? Like, well, how do they think about a future? Do you all touch on some of the, like, to your point about their humanity and who they are as people, but do, is there something you see as far as models or role models in do you see what's happening with these young boys that they become a particular type of young man that almost inevitably ends up in these negative outcomes? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And so if I just kind of stay with this example of working with kids aging out of foster care and then working with a small group of those kids to make this documentary film that we did, yeah, there were, there were three um, young people in particular that I worked most closely with. And, and when we finished the film, I always would like reflect back, like, what did I learn from the three of them? Like ultimately like big picture, what did yeah, I yeah. learn? So, so one of the, one of the young men, um, I learned about identity. Mm. Right. And the reason I learned that is because here's a kid who um, never knew who his father was and went into foster care about the age of nine had probably close to 30 different placements until he turned 18 when he aged wow. out. So there weren't consistent relationships and there wasn't connection to his biological family at large, let alone his, his dad or uncle or grandfather. How do you teach adolescent development, right? Like what's the whole point of adolescent development? It's identity formation, right. but how in relationship to your family? And many of us like do that by sort of like pushing back on our, our family, right? And say, oh, I don't wanna be like my mom and dad or my whomever, like I'm gonna be my own person. And like, so how do you do that, which is a part of normal human development? How do you do that when you don't, you don't have any connection to your biological family and the people in your life are incredibly inconsistent, right? It changes every six or 12 months, like who the parent, parent figures or role models are. And so I think it becomes incredibly difficult. And so I think, young men, teenage boys uh, becoming men are just sort of seeking wherever they can to figure out how to create their identity and to become a man. And I think it's, I think it's an incredible challenge. And um, I think it's one of the breakdowns of the system that may in some ways be a little less hidden than, than we might think. And kind of as we are wrapping our conversation up for today, I'm wondering um, how you're thinking we can use system change, um, but also just the conversation to the table. How can we get the conversation started to talk about giving an, an individual a sense of humanity, which therefore impacts them um, throughout 
their change to adulthood. So how can we really heal this stage of boys to men in our community? This dude has big questions. Gosh, I don't know <laughs> <see> all that. <laughs> but I, I love the, the, the opportunity to try to think about it, right? Sort of put some thoughts out there to that question audience, just kind of, I, I think, knowing a little bit about this audience is that as we start our, our work, whatever direction we're going to go in, right, as social workers and working in, in this field or, or profession of social work, we're always going to be working with people. And oftentimes we might be working with, you know, young adults or teenagers, you know, people that are going from boys to men, right? And so, like, I guess I always come back to the same basic principle which is that, you know, it's, it's relationship first. Like, how do we build trust with, with another person, build a relationship with somebody? The way I think about doing that is always from this basic sort of philosophy of practice, which is listen, learn, act with. I, I always start by, by you be curious, right? And you listen to people's stories. And then you learn from their expertise. Mm. Like the people that we work with are our teachers. Right. Like we're, we're not always here to be the professional expert to come in and solve the problem, right? The people that we work with are our teachers. And so they'll teach us, you know, what we need to know. And then our job becomes, well, how do I take action with that person? So mm-hmm. when, like, this is a, a very, I'll just stick with the, the example of the film. Like Cody was teaching me something that day sitting on his couch in his apartment, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very clear where he wanted to go. He wanted his, he wanted people to know what happened to him. Right. Right. That's what he said. And then we found a way to take action together so that we could figure out how people could know what happened to him. So other kids didn't have to go through the same experience. Right. So like that's listen, learn, act with, is just a, a basic practice. But I think that's a good orientation for anybody coming into this this work of like, well, how do I how do I do this in a way that's that's I think meaningful? So I don't know, Eva, you tell me if I answered the question or not. No, I, I really think I think you are really doing a great job of answering that question. I'm just hearing you say listening first instead of opening up this conversation just for anyone interested in this field, kind of talking to the people who have been through the system, who have experienced these, um, these transitions throughout the foster care system, and also just bringing in the voices of children and adults and seeing how things have changed and kind of what impact the child welfare system has made um, on these boys as they become men, I think is so important. And I, I really appreciate your insight on that. Um, I think that's something that we forget sometimes to just kind of as professionals, take a step back and listen. So I really, I really appreciate your insight there. Um, I want to say, Matt, thank you so much for being here with us today and um, sharing your work and what we can do to start this conversation um, of healing boys as they transition to men and just kind of looking at our systems and the changes that need to be made. So um, it's people like that you that kind of inspire all of us to really think about how we can do things differently. So I appreciate it so much. And Fonde, I appreciate your insight as well. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank you, Eva. Matt, it was a joy. I, you know, I, I am grateful to know that, that you are a, a change agent on the planet and that um, we all will be gaining more and more from your discoveries and that eventually it sounds like you'll end up being 
someone that ha that that people come to listen to from all over the country and, and, and ideally around the world, because the way you're thinking about caring for these children is refreshing and exciting. And, I, and I've had friends and family over the years be in uh, similar situations. And for a year of my life, I was in fo a foster home. So I, I come I completely understand um, what it is to feel that 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 desire to be back with family and also a desire to be out of a unhealthy situation. And it would have been great if I had a mat aiding me through that process at that time. That would have been, would have been awesome. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you for listening and reflecting along to this episode, Relatives. We hope the content and thoughts you experienced will continue to ignite the healing within. We encourage you to continue the conversation by scrolling through our other podcast episodes as some of them may have a part two or three and a reflection. We wish you all the love and good energy as you move forward in your healing journey. It is our honor to be here with you. Be sure to check us out on our Facebook page or at www.herwellness.org. And that is spelled H-I-R wellness.org. Take care, relatives.